God, you are good, you are great, and we want to thank you for this theological meal. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've patiently waited a long time for this moment to have a very brief little chat with all of you. Uh, it's going to be a little awkward for you and a little uncomfortable um, because I'm going to say something really quite embarrassing about yourselves, not about me. It's going to be awkward for you, not me. Um, it's something that kind of only I know about, and there's a few people that I've voiced it to, but in general, y'all don't know about this, okay? Um, and, and in this comment, I do have to exclude as a point of factuality that, that the professors are not included in this. They'll be addressed in a moment. Um, by virtue of where my office sits on campus, here it goes, all right? Every day, I look out of my office window and watch you losers walk by and check yourselves out in the reflection on my window, and it's been happening for years. And I, you see what I'm saying? It's kind of awkward, and it's hard, but I sit there and constantly just walk person after person walk by. So, so with the girls, it's a little more, it's fine. You kind of check your, your makeup, your hair, your, your glasses. Am I on fleek today? You know, and you, you, that's what you guys do. The guys are the worst. Uh, they walk by. They tend to stop for just a moment, check some, you know, am I doing okay? And then it's kind of like, tricep. You know, it, how's, the, how's the tricep today? And, and I'm just sitting there that y'all have no idea, but I'm sitting there just shamefully watching you. Um, and here's, here's what's true. I've kept a note of this. As professors walk by, they don't do it. I don't know what this says about our professors. I tend to hope that it's just godliness. Um, maybe they're contemplating, you know, Hebrew hithpiles or... Uh, you know, Peter Lombard's sentences in all four books or something. I don't know what they're doing, but they're, they're not doing that. It's, it's mostly kind of everybody else. So as much as I would like to include my esteemed colleagues in it, they just, they don't do it. Um, so this phenomenon could be called, or some have called it just the snare of compare, right? That we're always fearing man, and that results in vanity in ourselves, um, it's accurate in its description, right? This idea of snare of compare. So I've titled this sermon, uh, Covetousness, Comparison, and Jealousy, Oh My. Um, or if you don't like that title, we can go with a second one, uh, just called Seminary Sins, okay? Seminary Sins. So when you came to Spurgeon College or you came to seminary here, you were called to ministry, as best I can tell, and, and this is reflective of myself as well, we didn't get more sophisticated in our sins, right? Even though we were called to ministry or whatever that may look like for you, um, you just got, I just got more sophisticated in the way that we camouflage them. That's why I say seminary sins, right? Um, we try to church them up a little bit. Um, but whenever we're walking by and no one's watching, we're still kind of checking out how do we measure up? How do we compare with everyone else? And so I just thought I'd give you a couple examples of how jealousy and comparison, covetousness, how it talks in our hearts and our minds. So these are um, maybe not directly you, but you can get your mind around it. 
says something like this in our hearts and our minds. Sure, he's really smart at Greek, but what ministry takes is people skills. And yeah, I've got people skills, right? I'm the one who deserved that position, and they gave it to her, even though I have more experience and have been here longer. We're comparing. How is he able to balance a full-time job, do amazing family devotions, and keep a 3.9 GPA all at the same time? You're comparing. Maybe it sounds like this. Why does everyone seem to be so happily married while I am so unhappily alone? Well, everybody can tell my kids aren't as bright as his are. Sure, I struggle with anger, but at least I don't struggle with fill in the blank. It's the snare of compare. It's this false projection of others' efficiencies in our own hearts and our own minds and an inward staring at our own deficiencies. So false efficiencies in everybody else, false probably deficiencies in ourselves, but it's distorted and it it becomes contorted in our minds as we stare at our own reflection in the window or the mirror. And then we start staring at other people and make a mirror out of them and trying to see how we measure up. Turn to Numbers chapter 12. And this is the, the text where we'll look at this issue or really where this issue arises from. Numbers chapter 12, we'll read the whole chapter. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent, and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them came forward, he said, Listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord's anger burned against them and he left. As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased, resembling snow. When Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, my Lord, please don't hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed. Please don't let her be like a dead baby whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. The Lord answered Moses, if her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she remain in disgrace for seven years? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back in. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, 
and the people did not move on until Miriam was brought back in. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, my aim is, as you can already sense, my aim this morning is really to expose in you uh, and me uh, the false allure of the idol worship of others. This pattern of covetousness and comparison that, that arises in all of us. And what I want to play out after this sermon, this has been my prayer, is that you would walk out of here and that you would begin to tear up the roots of jealousy and covetousness and comparison and let them be melted away, hopefully by God's grace, if, if we can do this and God will give us light, it would be melted away in the luminous shine of the Son of God, that he's far more glorious than wasting our lives on comparing ourselves to each other, right? So that's my target, and I, I hope to hit it this morning. We'll, we'll see, and we pray for God's help. Um, we're going to look at six different observations in Numbers chapter 12. So if you're just tracking along, we have six different observations. And, and here's the first one out of the text, out of Numbers 12. Jealousy makes us delusional and disconnected with reality. Observation one, jealousy makes us delusional and disconnected with reality. What I mean by that is that jealousy gets down in the cracks of the soul and festers. It's what happens with you and me. It gets impacted and ingrown until it gushes out into the open, like with Miriam and Aaron in this text. Look at verse 1. Who knows exactly how long Miriam had been sitting back in comparison and covetousness of Moses? Uh, how long it had been festering, we, we don't know. But all at once, it spews out into the open. And what is the stated issue in verses 1 and 2? Uh, it stated that it was on account of his marriage to a Cushite woman. This is modern-day Ethiopia or Sudan. And as I've wrestled with this text, I, I think what is most helpful to explain it is to say there seems to have been a conversation going on happening in Miriam and Aaron's head prior to this moment that went something like this. This is what the conversation must have been in their head. This is inappropriate, Moses. Moses you really must think more politically. You ought to marry a woman of your own ethnicity. That seems to be the conversation that's going on in your head. So you and I are right to detect notes, if not heavy notes, of racism in, in this scenario. So Moses, now to flip it a little bit, Moses obviously, from, from my standpoint, understood that his Cushite wife to be a follower of Yahweh. Uh, for some explanation, it's possible that um, she would have been in the ethnically diverse group that God had brought out in, in Exodus 12. Um, there seemed to be some level of God-fearing in, in this group. Uh, maybe some of them are converts. And we're just not told a lot else about his, his wife. In fact, this is all that we're told. Um, and so it, it seems appropriate to, to assume that she you know, was a woman worthy of, of Moses' uh, affections. But that's not how Miriam and, and Aaron see it. So when Miriam chose, and you and I know this, New Testament believers, she chooses to stand in public open opposition to, to Moses' marriage to a non-Hebrew Cushite woman. Um, she's standing, we, we know, against the whole flow of redemptive history, 
great commission history, that God is for the nations, right? And so she's standing against that. And what happens in the text is a heavy dosage of what could be called poetic justice, a heavy dosage. God is for all nations, and in effect, so that was the conversation happening in Miriam and Aaron's head to some degree. So what's happening in reality? God brings a poetic justice here, and he brings a skin-whitening leprosy upon Miriam. In essence, what is being said is, Miriam, you want to make a stand against this marriage on account of this Cushite woman's skin? Well, let's see just how white your skin can get. There's a, a, a reversal and a, and a tragic one even. And he strikes her with a ghostly skin-bleaching leprosy. But the text really rushes along from that pretty quickly. It seems as though that isn't the decisive issue. It's a huge issue. But the decisive issue is that it's not Moses' wife's skin. That's the surface issue. You could say skin-level issue. We see more clearly that in Miriam, her heart is, she, she is a glory mongerer. She's power hungry. She's a political opportunist. And Miriam and Aaron, they fail in this moment to see the kind provisions the Lord had lavished on them through their brother's leadership. This is like sibling rivalry on a gigantic scale, right? But they were thankless and characterized by complaining all the way through. Why? Because they perceive in Moses on God's part, maybe they're not even aware of that, but they perceive a disproportionality of Moses' station versus theirs in comparison. So they were so self-focused and so curled in on themselves that they lost sight of real reality. They lost sight of the blessings of God. They lost sight of the Exodus. They lost sight of God. It's the same with us. We let stuff fester under the surface, hidden out of sight, and then we crack, right? We explode on someone. We do something foolish. We sin against our brother or our sister. We quarrel, we snarl, we snatch to obtain, and we want our name chanted at least in everyone's mind, if not from the crowd, Dean Beerig is Captain Awesome Sauce. You know, (sighs) we want that. And that's what's happening in Miriam and Aaron's heart. So jealousy, what we're seeing in this first observation, jealousy by nature, the sinful nature, it contorts reality. And it it renders life and relationships warped and out of proportion. That's the first observation. Observation two, comparison tends to work in proximity or vicinity. Comparison, observation two, comparison tends to work in proximity or vicinity. Uh, Let me illustrate this. Um, Seventh grade basketball players, seventh grade basketball players, don't compare themselves to Stephen Curry or Jabron Lames, okay? They don't do that. They're not in, they're not in uh, proportionality. What do they do? They find the guy on the starter on the A team, and they get him in his mind, and then he starts gnawing on him. He can't dribble like me, can't shoot like me. Yes, I'm shorter, but I mean, that, that's how it happens. It happens in vicinity. It happens in proximity. And we look for people, you and I, 
who are close to our little self-made kingdom, and we begin to match ourselves up and assess the threat and compare, and then we begin to tear them down in our heart and our mind, and we start getting disproportionate and, and delusional. Of course, comparison is no surprise. It's devastating to our relationships inside the church, and it's like acid being poured over the Great Commission. Why? Well, because we're so focused on comparing and not outreaching, right? We're, we're our own form of, of narcissism, and we have no idea we're doing it, right? So verse 2, Miriam looks at her own ministry. Look at verse 2. She looks at her own ministry, track record, provokes Aaron to do the same, and they think to themselves, we can do a better job than Moses. Let's pull him down. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to pull him down. But it, it happens in this comparison moment, and just like crabs, they start pulling them down in the bucket, right? You've heard that analogy. They're just pulling them down. What's happening in verses 1 through 2 is it's written really like um, a literary flashback to Genesis 3 in the garden, right? It's a, it's a flashback. So Numbers 12, um, we're supposed to think, haven't I heard something like this before? Haven't I read something like this before? Eve grasped for a God-like, God-sized station, Adam abdicates, and the whole good creation comes crashing down. That's the story. This is Moses recycling. He's cueing that same story that we read Numbers 12 in light of uh, the fall. And it's meant to be read as a fall 2.0 on a smaller scale. But the point is the same. Things go horribly wrong when we grasp and snatch at stations that God has not given us. So what is so tragically absent from these uh, first two verses is thankfulness or a desire for the glory of God, right? They, they become so curled in that they lose sight of the very God who rescued them out of Egypt. What do they think? What do they do? They do what you do. They mutiny against authority. They mutiny against Moses. And if you see that comparison, this is my hope in this observation, if you can see that comparison often works in proximity, um, it will help you fight it. Just notice the foolishness of it, that it's happening in proximity. And you want to dwell instead on the treasures of Christ, your inheritance as a son of the king. Observation three, we're especially tempted toward jealousy of those in leadership over us. We're especially tempted toward jealousy of those in leadership over us. Look at verse three. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Uh, Moses is very clear here. Moses is an amazing leader, and God is clarifying that for us. There's not like a lot to mince here. I mean, it's just that that's flat. God had placed him in his spot, in his station, and he had designed him for it. He designed his story, and God says he was more humble than anyone in the whole cosmos. I mean, what a, what a comprehensive statement um, that we get here. And what we're learning is that if Miriam and Aaron are able to do this, you too and I are, are going to be tempted to look at our bosses, to look at our parents, to look at pastors, presidents, authorities. We're going to look at them in our heart and we're going to gnaw on them. We're going to chew on them and we're going to assess ourselves accordingly. And we're going to, at times, sinfully, try to pull them down. We've been doing it ever since Adam and Eve questioned God in the garden. 
So it seems to be a part, at least from this text, it seems to be a part of our fallen human nature to try to pull leaders down from positions of authority based on our own inflated view of ourselves. What I'm not saying, don't hear what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there's never a point and a justification in, in removing leaders or something like that. What, what I'm saying is looking it, with Miriam and Aaron at good leadership and just gnawing at them by comparison, jealousy, covetousness. In our depravity, we naturally do not want accountability or authority over us. If there's ever been a truer statement. We just don't. We don't like it. We try to throw it off and we'd rather be in charge ourselves. And Miriam and Aaron put this principle of the repercussions of the fall on glorious display, on grand display. So protect against, to protect against this slide, I would suggest to you and to, to me, meditate on all the specific ways, this is what Miriam and Aaron apparently don't do, on all the specific ways God has blessed you through authority, blessed you through this school, blessed you through your pastors, through your parents, through bosses, Pray for them earnestly. Pray for them regularly. And if you have to, get a notebook out and start writing things down to, to try to combat the bitterness, combat the comparison. And you must fight the temptation towards jealousy of those who are in leadership over you if you're tempted or prone to that. Miriam and Aaron here, they, they face plant uh, in spectacular fashion. God placed leaders in your life for your sanctification, for my sanctification, and for your good. We are often borderline delusional and out of sync with reality when we're jealous. That's what's happening. And our own mental lawyers come rushing to our defense quickly, and yet it still stands. Authority is God's, and it's good at the root. It can go bad, but it's good at the root, and it's for God to distribute how and when he wishes. Observation four, repentance is the remedy. Observation four, repentance is the remedy. Uh, look at verses 10 through 11. As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased, resembling snow. When Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, my Lord, please don't hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed. So hope in this story, it is downhill all the way to this point, to verses 10 and 11. But it breaks in, in the narrative, when Aaron repents. That's when it happens. So he rushes to Moses as quick as he can. He pleads with him. What does he say? Please don't hold against us this sin. So for you, for me, just as any other sin in your life, covetousness, comparison, jealousy, it's a battle for belief. Do you really believe God or not? And when you're falling prey to this sin, you don't. You're... You have to fight to believe that God is good in your current station. So you wrestle your way to seeing the goodness of God. You beg God to help you see it, to get to a new plateau where you can see something different than where you currently are. You beg him to do it. You trust that he's good in whatever he's currently called you to. So maybe you're a mother and that's difficult for you right now because you have younger children or you're a student and all you want is to be a pastor and you're trying to get out of here as quick as you can. Maybe it's your job that it feels dead into you. Maybe you're an intern and you're convinced you're Gibran Lames. You know, like it, it happens in these ways that we have to be thankful for where God has us. We have to be content 
And we have to be careful not to judge ourselves up against others and then to begin to, to pull them down. So up to this point, Aaron and Miriam had failed to believe God. That, that, that seems to be very clear. And they didn't believe God had their, their good in mind uh, by placing Moses over them. So they didn't fight jealousy, but instead they fall prey to it. Um, the remedy for your temptation toward the sin of comparison and, and jealousy is, is repentance. That's why I say repentance is the remedy. You have to lop off the heads of your idols of comparison and covetousness, and you replace them with worship. You replace them with doxology. You, you replace them, you replace the tiny lights of the accolades of this world by giving yourself uh, to the floodlight of daily doxology in God through his word, through prayer, through, through fasting. This is how you give yourself to the Lord in, in doxology and, and get away from these foolish, tiny lights that the world offers us. Verses 5 through 10 really helps us with this daily need of, of doxology. And I think what's happening here in a, in a full canonical sense is that repentance is shown to be worship and worship is shown to be repentance. Here, here's what I mean. Um, it's a move toward the, the one true living God is what Aaron does here. And then simultaneously, it's a move away from idolatrous allegiance to lesser gods that him and Miriam had fallen to at this point. And so verses five and eight, what, what are we supposed to do? This is the difficult part of this passage. There's a number of them, but this is one. What are we supposed to do with this uh, cloud and presence of God scenario? What, what do we do with that? Let, let's reread verses five and eight. Verse five says, then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. That's verse five. Look at verse eight. I speak with him directly, him meaning Moses, God speaking. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So we have to wrestle here and do some, some tight theological and exegetical work. But here's three things we know uh, from Scripture that will help us. Three things very plainly. We know that God is omnipresent. He, he's everywhere present, right? Solomon prays a glorious prayer in 1 Kings 8. But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. So, we're taught in Scripture here and elsewhere that he transcends space. God transcends space. So it's, it's not as though he's bounded to even heaven, for it too is, a cre is created and, and sustained by him. So we couldn't possibly see God in his fullness because we'd have to possess omnipresence to behold omnipresence, right? We'd have to be everywhere. Further, we're told that we die if we saw him in his full splendor, right? Robert Smith, the, the uh, homiletics professor at Beeson, one of my favorite preachers, uh, I'll never forget, I was listening to him preach, and he said that his mother once taught him that God is so big that if God moved, he'd bump into himself. <laughs> he, he said it differently, though, in the way that, uh, you know, Professor Smith would be saying, he would bump into himself, you know. It was just incredible. But I've never forgotten that. It's like, how could we possibly conceive of all of God? If he were to move, he'd bump into himself. 
Well, we know other things about God, plainly from Scripture as well. He's also timeless. So you'd have to be momentless or timeless with him, and and thus in all moments simultaneously, uh, in order to see him in his fullness. A second thing we know in the three, John 4, 24, God is spirit. So he's spirit, and he's spirit, but not like an angel is spirit, right? I think what the scriptures are teaching is that God is spirit and that he's beyond the perimeter of created things. So we still have to answer the question, what was happening right, in this text? Maybe there's a third thing that will help us. 1 John 4.12, we also know that no one has ever seen God. But here we are. Moses sees the form of God. There's a pillar of cloud, and then he comes to speak to them and stands, right? So is the Bible like bipolar, Dr. Johnson? You know, is that what's happening? No. What, what do we mean then by form? What does Moses behold in verse 8? I think there's an indicator for my exegetical money, what I'm betting on. Um, we're told that he descends. I think that's important if you read it in Scripture. We're told that he stands at the tent of meeting. So I think this, this is a Christophonic manifestation of the pre-existing second person of the Trinity. He's coming to us in pre-flesh, pre-incarnation. Maybe it's what Isaiah saw. Maybe that would help us. Maybe it's what Isaiah saw, but only in a vision. Isaiah 6, right? I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. I think 1 John, John can, can help us again. In 1 John 3, 2, what does it say? Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So I think what's happening, and, and, and for us uh, New Testament Christians, after the incarnation of Christ, these sorts of things, what we can see is that Moses saw God in a spectacular and exclusive way. And for us, this is something of a glimpse maybe in the 1 Corinthians 10 sense, maybe it's an advantage of us that we can see a glimpse as to what awaits us in resurrection life. Trying to grapple with this reality of of the doctrine of of God's incomprehensibility. We can can get at it a little bit. Uh, One time I was reading in a children's storybook uh, with, with my kids and we were covering Exodus 33 where Moses asks to see God's glory, right? And you know the passage, very famous. God hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he says, if if you were to see me, you would be eviscerated. And so he passes by him, and uh, I'm talking about this with with my daughter particularly, and she says, "Um, so it's like God's afterglow. And I was like, you fixed it. You fixed 2,000 years of difficulty, you know, so what is she saying? What, what, it, what it helped me in that moment even is we, we can't see God in his fullness. His glorious shine upon us is, is true and factual in this text. Um, but his glory is for us to behold and even in a glorious way in resurrection life. So when you and I repent, you don't repent to a Webster's Dictionary definition of God. You don't repent to a false God you repent to the one true living God, the God who is not bound by north, east, southwest. He is spirit and beyond the perimeter of created things. He is uncreated 
and there is no created thing in him. So that is God. You get to worship him. When you're repenting, know who he is. Recognize, hopefully, seems what Miriam and Aaron saw and Moses saw. Observation five, Moses is a telescope unto Christ. Moses is a telescope unto Christ. This is verse 13. It says, then Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. So what do I mean by telescope? You know, a microscope magnifies something that that is very small, right? Um, But a telescope does what? A telescope takes something nearly infinite and, and far off and brings it close to us. This is Moses in this text. We must use Moses this morning to lasso Christ and pull him close to us. We look through Moses like a telescope to try to get our arms, the arms of our mind, around the infinitude of the Son of God. The incarnation come in the New Testament is the resolution of the impossible tension of this text. How can these two rebels be forgiven? Well, Jesus is coming. It's by faith. So Moses is a biblical-grade lens for us, for you and me, to see him far off, as it were, in the cosmos coming at us, right? So Jesus is the true and better Moses, a sinless, guiltless Moses. Let's just do some, some thinking here. As Moses was rejected by the people and even Miriam and Aaron, Jesus is, of course, far more rejected. Moses is falsely accused and betrayed in our story and yet forgives anyway. This is the essence of Jesus' ministry. He buys back his betrayers. Moses is the innocent party in our story, yet pleads on behalf for his betrayers, Aaron and Miriam. So too does Christ at Calvary. Moses is merciful to Miriam and Aaron. How much more so is Christ to rebels? Jesus does not treat us as we deserve, even more so than Moses here. Look at verse 8. As unique and exclusive as Moses' relationship with God is, what does Jesus say in John 10, 30? I and the Father are one. Finally, Moses intercedes by prayer as a a mediator between God and, and Miriam and Aaron. Jesus Christ intercedes in prayer, yes, at the right hand of the Father, but even more so, he intercedes with his very body and his blood in sacrifice on the cross in our stead. In the evening, uh, our, our way, and, and this is when I was reading the children's storybook Bible as well, same kind of time for us. Uh, when, when we conclude that and I'm putting the kids to bed, I have a, um, a practice, custom, and I pronounce number six, the, the priestly benediction over them. I pray for them. And then we sing uh, three songs every, every single time. The doxology, and in this order, the doxology, bits and pieces of nothing but the blood, and then come thou fount of every blessing, just catechizing them, right? But what does come thou fount of every blessing say? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, how so? He interposed his precious blood. He is an interceding priest. In their catechism that that we work through with the kids, uh, it's called Young Children, the Young Children's Catechism. It's the Baptist one, amen. Um, ver- question 47, 
says, why do you, so this is as much for me and Mallory as it is for the kids, right? But here's the question, 47. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Answer, because I am guilty. You need, I need an intercessor. We need someone to intercede his perfect, precious blood, sinless blood on our behalf. And Moses in Numbers 12 is a telescope to look through. He's bringing Christ and his majesty and his glory and his love close to us so we can see him with our weakened spiritual eyes. Observation six, thankfulness is the way. Thankfulness is the way. Notice I didn't say contentment is the way. Thankfulness is the way. Why, why would I not say contentment? This is just me in assessing my own heart, my own sin. But it seems to me to be near impossible to go to my heart and say, heart, be content. You may have better luck with that. I don't know. But in numbers, the people of Israel, and this is a spectacular display, especially in this section of numbers, but the people of Israel kept rejecting God's provision and leadership for them. And, and there is an astounding absence of thankfulness. And it's on display here in uh, Miriam and Aaron. And their distorted view becomes this covetousness and comparison that it births in them. So the way to destroy the snare of compare in your life is to cultivate the hard-bitten discipline of thankfulness. It is hard. It is a cultivated discipline. But it's the best way to grow contentment. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's the will of God that you be thankful in whatever station you are today. Whatever situation. And so thankfulness, we see scripturally, it kills jealousy and comparison on the spot. It's like kryptonite to complaining and grumbling. Maybe get alone today with your Bible and a notebook and just begin to list things you're thankful for. So we live our days often under the spell of complaining and thanklessness. If, if you fail to cultivate a heart of thankfulness, you will live a life full of distorted relationships and realities. In conclusion, what, what should we do? Be like Aaron in this text in the latter part. Be like Aaron when he turns. He repents immediately, verse 11. Do not punish us. We have done foolishly. He's confessing. He's going to the place where he knows he can get fixed. And what is Moses' response as our kind of Christ, our type of Christ? He takes their cause before God immediately, verse 13. Oh, please heal her, please. Three times the word please comes in this little section. And this is good news for you and for me because we can't fix ourselves. And you know that. We, we can't quite get there and we need help. So we need to, to be staggered afresh that Christ 2,000 years ago came to fix us. He came to forgive us. He came to die in our stead. And that that's not some ethereal reality out there. But this is Christ loving you today, loving you even through the word, reminding you, exposing you to your own comparison, your own jealousy of other people. He took your leprosy. He took your penalty. He took the full fury of, of righteous wrath. And he took your punishment. So if you're a seminary student in here, you're a soccer player, you're a fusion student, you're an administrator, 
you're a professor, if you have trusted in Christ, you don't have to live under this yoke any longer, and you are forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. So don't walk in that anymore. Pray with me. Lord, teach us to train the gaze of our hearts on you. Grant us uh, contentment, grant us thankfulness. Lord, we want to glory and be thankful in, in this set of friends, in this church, this ministry, these kids, this budget, this job, this family, this spouse, this amount of scholarship money, this mind, this education, this family. Lord, we need you. We thank you for saving us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.